Welcome to Heal. In our materialistic, every man for himself, adolescent-minded society, men have been left on their own, sans the wisdom and the insistence of elders to wrestle their own darkness. On today's episode, author of the New York Times bestsellers, It Starts With Food and The Whole 30, Dallas Hartwig and I deviate from the world of nutrition to confront the stunted development of the masculine. I'm your host, Dr. Sarah Marshall. Dallas Hartwig, welcome to Heal. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's really good to be here. And I'm going to do the thing that you can just tune out for the next couple of seconds, which is when Kendra and I first created the podcast and we had our very first meeting in her backyard of her old house, she was like, all right, I want your dream list. Like, who are the people that you would just like love? And you were the first name out of my mouth. Well, that's very kind of you. Thank Uh you. And so it's uh, kind of a special day for me to have you in my house here doing this and taking it on. And Well, that's nice to hear. Yeah. And we have your accolades are on the bio and they're going to be on the website. And one of my favorite things is to not do that. Yeah, let's not do that. Because you're a human with awesome thoughts and a great heart and have become a friend, which I'm so stoked about. Projects yet to come and thoughts we get to bounce off of each other. And I'm just really grateful to have you here. Hell yeah. Do we swear here just so oh, I know? Oh, fuck yes. Great. Okay. <laughs> I was like, I should have asked you before we pressed play. But it's play. good, yeah. <laughs> Great. It's, this is all about self-expression, often authentic communication and connection. So if that's the expression, then that's the expression. Red. Yeah, Let's totally. So one of the things I'm really excited about today is I was actually meditating before this to get myself in the zone. And what just was coming through for me is I'm at this breaking point in my business where I'm not going to do the next 10 years the way I did the last 10 Mm -hmm. years. Not that I'm not going to support people in their healing or work with people one-on-one, but like I was in the, can I do it? Can I build it? Drive what I would call a very masculine model of living right? with goal setting and, you know, action plans and all those kinds of things. And I've gotten good at that game. I've been successful at that game and I'm really expanding myself and I want to say pushing myself, but that's also coming from that model. Is it so ingrained in me? <laughs> totally. To how can I live for me true to the sacred feminine and keep success rolling in a mm-hmm. way that is in alignment with me, but I've actually been engaging in a lot of conversations with people. They're like, you could be, you know, a seven-figure coach. That's not a goal for me. Right. I'm actually not committed to wealth for the sake of wealth right. at all. I don't even want to put my life force. I'd rather have a 20-hour work week and a really rich life with my community. Totally. So that's also kind of one side of it that I know you have a conversation you're exploring on the masculine side of what does it mean to be an evolved and healthy masculine man? Well, yeah. So I am exploring that. Exploring meaning still finding my way, yeah. very much so. And it's interesting and I think really insightful of you to notice that you have adapted to the world as it exists in the very um, success-oriented, productivity-oriented, economic, patriarchal way, and that's worked for you. You've mm-hmm. done that thing, yep. right? And also, there's this whole other part of you that has been partially neglected, that has not matured in step, in mm-hmm. kind of... You, you have a chronological age and you have sort of this maturational age. And in the, I think what I'm hearing you say is like in the feminine sphere, your maturational age, age lags behind your chronological age. Oh, yeah. Right? Which is true actually for, I think, both the typical man and the typical woman 
in the West, in mm-hmm. the modern world. For different reasons, sort of, but then kind of the same reasons. Yeah. Because when you focus on success and productivity and ultimately like individualism, hierarchicalism, domination, acquisition of resources, like really what is, you can kind of boil it down to the sort of young, I don't mean immature necessarily, but young masculine of like protect and provide. Yeah. Because what you did when building your business is protect and provide. And I was predominantly single through most of that time. And, you know, I might have people I was dating or in a relationship. We did not, were in, never in the context of like they were providing for me. Right. Or, or protecting because yeah. in a way, it's not just the physical protection, right? No. Like having a 401k feels like protection. Yeah. Right. So we have this economic proxy for protect and provide. And it's not just food on the table. It's also the sense of security beyond yeah. food on the table. And what I actually like concretely in my life noticed was, you know, my dad was very successful in his career. He built awesome medical-based software company, sold it. He's been retired for five years. And I was watching this kind of what I would call like the young maiden who hasn't been married off to the next family. Like mm-hmm. I still had the fatherly protection. Totally. And there was a breaking point a couple of years ago where my dad's like, well, yeah, but you'll always have us in this way. And it's like, I'm grateful and I love you guys and I don't want it. Right. Because it's like, I want to know I'm the one that handled, for me, one of the big ones is my student loan debt. Like, right. how am I going to be responsible for that in, inside my life? And to like take on my future financial life. But then when I started to get into that game, the masculine was flooding in even more with like how I had to save and how I had to create certain things. And there was no magic. There was no mystery. There was totally. no what I call the wild feminine. Mm-hmm. And we might discover there's a lot of masculine in that too, the sure. spiritual aspects. And for the last two years, as I've been dwelling in that, I've had more success than ever. Mm-hmm. And I feel like I'm banging my head against a wall with my daily way of being. And right. now in a new relationship... Like one of the things Justin and I are struggling with is not struggling, but up against is how I have to turn off the killer at work all day long (laughs) and become the girl again or the woman that he is in love with. And when that doesn't happen, we don't connect well. Yeah. I mean, because, and and you can flip it different ways in different relationships, right? Like there's a totally appropriate opportunity or moment or dynamic between, in this case, a man and a woman where you could have the man be very much in his soft, gentle, feeling feminine and the woman be in her like structured leadership masculine role. Mm-hmm. And that's totally fine. That's not the most common successful pattern. Right. But it's totally fine. It's certainly appropriate in mm-hmm. transient ways because it, it, it can flip back and forth in that very polar way. But I, th- I think what I'm hearing you say is yeah. that's not the mode you want to exist in primarily. It's not the most nourishing for me. Right. Having now through my own development, through spiritual workshops and meditation work and and education that I've gotten and, and had the experiences in my body where I've been able to drop really deep into a very sacred feminine place, I'm hungry for that. Yeah. I want more of that. I want to have that. And I also would like to start, that's my challenge to myself, is to not have it be only in my off hours right? right. <laughs> that I have access to it. Right. How do I bring all of that stuff everywhere I go? Yeah. Yeah. The other thing I was thinking about just a second ago is you were talking about kind of differentiating from your parents. Yeah. Differentiating, like, you know, saying like, hey, dad, thanks for like backing me up. But like, I actually need to know that this is my journey now, mm-hmm. which is really, I mean, that's a developmental process. That is what would happen 
with infants and toddlers in a securely attached relationship, you would say, I feel safe enough here to spontaneously leave this very sheltered place that I feel safe and protected and to actually start to explore the world on my own, knowing I have a safe place to come back to. Mm -hmm. And so as adults, what we often do, we create the sensation of safety, often through accumulation of wealth or some proxy for that. And we say, okay, I feel safe enough now. Like I know my parents are there, my friends are there, my partner's there, whatever. I can start being more of myself and, and differentiating and exploring the world a bit more, which invariably feels good because we're pointing at and, and, and finding parts of ourselves that have been largely ignored all the way along. And sometimes even like suppressed into the shadow kind of stuff. Yeah. But it's interesting to hear you say, you know, I created enough sort of wealth security to feel safe enough to step away from that sort of support from yeah. family to then go do something that feels more like a larger, more expansive, more authentic version of you. And like this happens in all these different timelines, literally like in the attachment sense when we're months and years old and it happens all through our life on different, it's like a fractal pattern, just stretches the timeline, yeah. kind of stretches. Yeah. And go, and I feel myself go through those cycles over and over again. I mean, having my health alter this summer and stepping into what does it mean to deal with different constraints in my energy and my concentration levels had me go, I want to say the word backward, but in, into that place of mm -hmm. like the security and the safety net of my family and my close circle around me was a lot of what made the difference when things were in the crashing mode. Now I'm in a really solid, sustainable place and I keep improving week to week. I can right. notice things that are coming back online. But, it, you know, so it's like I, I'm almost going back through aspects of that process again. Right. Yeah. Well, that's the, I mean, that's, again, that's the sort of secure base idea because a toddler will wander away from the secure base, the parent that they're securely attached to, and something will spook them and they'll come running back. And that's what you're supposed to do. Mm -hmm. Like, you, you know, when you're in that securely attached place, you know that you have a safe place to come back to. And they're there for you, just like you had with your yeah. family this past year. So it's the same, it's the same pattern. It's not regression it's actually just living <laughs> right. because living is not start one place go somewhere else and never come back it is out and back yeah. all the time and when we don't have that really deep sense of security both as children and then later as adults we don't really leave the nest spontaneously in a fully letting go and exploratory way so the really like expansive thing and maturational thing is to play around with leaving and coming back. And like, oh, they're still there. Oh, cool. I can go a bit farther next time. I can mm -hmm. go a bit farther next time. I can go a bit farther. And then at some point when you need something to come back to, sometimes other people aren't there for you. Yeah. And that's when you, ha along the way, you're internalizing that secure base, that that stability, that, that like, I'm okay in the world, safety feeling. And if other people aren't there, it's a bummer, but you're okay because you've got it in you. Yeah. And you are the place you come back to. So it's all the same pattern. So what happens when that's not the case? I mean, like, if we look out in the world right now, I don't have the perception of a lot of people that are, you know, healthfully attached and secure and <laughs> totally. safe in themselves and their nests to come back to. It seems like that's totally. a lot of what, at the level of community, for sure, at the level of government, at the level of nation, and then also, I, I always say, the macrocosm and the microcosm are mirror images of each other. 100%. So what we see happening in group and in city dynamics is just a reflection of what is totally. our in, our internal conflicts and our internal lack of security. Totally. Well, actually, I actually had a conversation with a group of men that I have a weekly meeting with two nights ago and then record a podcast on that exact topic yesterday because that was my observation too, was that when we don't have a sense of security in our own bodies 
everything we put out is dysregulated and we not only cannot co-regulate in a positive direction with anybody else, like we contribute any sort of emotional ballast to anyone else, but we also spill over and infect everyone else with a dysregulation. And that's what's happening at the national scale right now. Yeah. And so my kind of call and observation in that space was every single one of us have to find ways to find more regulation internally. And if you have a really solid partner that you co-regulate really well with, take that smallest unit and do that too. But don't expect that, you know, your neighbor and the coworker who you disagree with politically are going to be somebody that you can co-regulate in a positive direction with. Yeah. And to use the the analogy of um, somebody who's, you know, fallen into a lake and doesn't know how to swim and is drowning. If my seven-year-old son is that person who fell into the lake, I'm big enough and strong enough and capable enough of a swimmer to jump in and I have the like ballast to save him. Mm-hmm. If I'm not a strong swimmer or I'm really, you know, I'm, I'm undernourished, I'm exhausted, I'm stressed, I'm, I have less capacity to donate to save him. Mm-hmm. Or if he's a 250 pound lineman, it's going to be harder for me to do. And so the, the relative kind of almost mass of those two individuals in that interaction does matter. Mm -hmm. And so the task, I think, and I think this is actually quite a a masculine task in that sort of leadership containment structural kind of way. The task there is to make my mass, my ballast as large as I possibly can so that when people are struggling and floundering and feeling like they're drowning, there's a lot of stability to to co-regulate with. But that's a totally internal individual process. What are some of the access points to that? Like I know the personal growth work I've done in the last 10 years, I never would have used this language. But as you're saying it, I can map it right on to like the more work I did on myself, the more traumas I resolved, the more I checked myself on is that factor, is that opinion, is that actually what's happening now or am I living in some, you know, made up construct of fear or threat Is there really a threat or is my body just responding from an animalistic point? You know, I dealt in those things day in and day out for years such that I got really good at being able to do it quickly to the point where now most of the time I'm usually one of the most level-headed in the room. And most people around me will say, I just like being in your presence because I feel feel stabilizing, safe. I feel calm. It's always peaceful. They'll just come sit next to me and they're like, can I just sit here? (laughs) 100%. And- I can look for myself, but I'm curious for you, like, how do you cultivate that internal ballast? Yeah. So there's there's two pieces to it. And I'll, I'll backstep just for a second into polyvagal theory, because I think that's a way to, to think about this. So Stephen Porges kind of came up with this, this model of that, that takes into account our evolutionary history and how the vagal nerve developed and mm-hmm. what it does in terms of regulating our central nervous system and communicating with the viscera. And the vagus nerve is one of the cranial nerves that comes yes. down and regulates a lot of like heartbeat, blood pressure, breath. Digestion. Digestion. All stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a kind of an older and a younger version of the vagal nerve. And the newer, younger version is the part in sort of an evolutionary sense that gives us the safe and social, very human, very communicative, very open, very nuanced, very cognitive mode. And the more sort of, so there's kind of, let's say there's three levels, if we will. There's the well-known sort of sympathetic nervous system fight or flight response, which is the mobilization energy for warm-blooded mammals. You fight something or you run away, and that's how you survive. 
there's sort of a little subset of the fight, which is basically the, like posture. I'm going to puff my chest and I'm going to have bluster. Mm -hmm. And that's the like actually adaptive response to fighting because fighting means somebody somebody gets hurt yeah. or both of us or maybe or we die. So there's a lot of risk. So it's way better just to posture. And so then there's the opposite side of that, which is submit. So what happens if you can't resolve the problem with posture or fight or flight, you go into a more kind of deeper and more regressive and more primitive stress response, which is the sort of freeze, fawn, and submit parts of things. So if you have two mammals in conflict and one postures bigger or harder than the other, when you lose that response and you can't, for whatever reason, run away – you go down into submit and it becomes mm. soft and you're like, okay, you win, which is better than fighting and dying. Right. So all of, all of that to say, when I look at it, the world, what I see is a lot of people really freaked out doing a lot of posturing, which is effectively threatening to fight. A lot of that mobilization energy. And of course, anger is the emotion most correlated with that mobilization energy. We see a lot of anger out there. And anger is the emotional response to feeling wronged, to feeling boundaries being crossed, yeah. to some, your safety or someone you care about safety being threatened. And that's like, it's a, it's a good mechanism to protect yourself in the space of being threatened. It can even be expectations that are not met. 100%. It doesn't even have to be quite so like literal threats. It can just be assumptions and expectations totally. that that boundary gets crossed and it's right there. Right. Well, and this is where perception of threat is is an important concept because you don't have to have a literal tiger chasing you or someone literally pointing a gun at you. Yeah. You can have the sensation of like threat of loss. And what's super interesting, and I don't want to go too far down this road only because it gets murky, <laughs> but, but social and fiscal conservatives respond more powerfully to the threat of loss. Mm. Their stress response system is more sensitive to that perceived threat. Again, perception is everything here. So one of the keys, if we, so then going back to the sort of mammalian fight or flight and sort of reptilian, the older, simpler, and much more isolating responses of the sort of immobilization responses of freeze and fawn and submit, none of those things are relational. And one of the things that happens as the, as the um, nervous system gets kicked up there is we lose nuance. Everything becomes very binary and very black and white. Yep. We see, we get, we get tunnel vision. We get hyper-focused on the thing that's right in front of us. It becomes all-encompassing and all-important. And we utterly lose access to the prefrontal cortex and our executive function. Hmm. And so, again, I look out at the world, and that's the story I see. Prefrontal cortex being our judgment center, our ability to actually, like, slow it down and look at the big picture. Take Context, out, reasonability. See things from another direction, another viewpoint. Totally. Yeah. And, and through it's also the way that we can mentalize and imagine what it would be like to be somebody other than we are in a different space. Put ourselves in someone else's shoes. Totally. Yeah. So what's apparent to me there is when we have lots of dysregulated people in some mix of those states, yep. none of those dysregulated states give us access to nuanced thought. And if we have complex, nuanced human problems, which we do on a grand scale, we need complex, nuanced human thought to do that. But if we are thinking as less less advanced mammals or even more primitive reptiles, there's absolutely no problem solving that can go on there. And there's no conversation that can go on there. Mm -mm. And, you know, Sam Harris says, and I'm kind of paraphrasing, but he'll be like, look, we can have either conversation or violence. Yeah. This is the, these are the two paths we can choose. And I, I think that's correct. 
And conversation is, I agree with that. Conversation is the way, is the alternative to violence, but you can't have conversation when you're trying to get two reptiles to talk. Right. Because they don't do that. They don't have complex nuanced language and executive function and all that stuff. So what's apparent to me there is we individually need to find ways to get ourselves closer to a safe and social neurological state, to, Mm. to pull ourselves out of that either fight or flight sympathetic response or that kind of deeper shutdown, that immobilization response, if we have any hope of real conversation. Yeah. And that is where personal responsibility comes in. And it's interesting. I've, I often hear personal responsibility being kicked around um, as a catchphrase, especially among conservatives. Yeah. And what I hear a lot of times in that space is not I'm taking more responsibility for myself. What I hear is I'm taking no responsibility for you. Right. It's a severing of the connection being like, I'm cutting you loose. You do yours, I do That's mine. That's not personal responsibility. No. That is, I'm looking out for me. And I get that that's a very barbed, sweeping generalization, but that's what I see when I when I talk to people who say personal responsibility is a core value. Yeah. And humans, for all of our evolutionary history up until the last few thousand years, have been deeply collectivist. It's how we became humans. It's why we have this complex, nuanced, and exquisitely sensitive social network, the way that we can connect with each other. And we have micro expressions and we have all of these different gradations of emotion that express different things to each other without even saying words. And we have the sensitive physiology and neurology to go along with it, Mm -hmm. except it's been so inundated and bombarded more recently between physical toxicity chemical inflammation, which a ton of which just comes from food. Like I, I just had a new client who came to me and she's, you know, been struggling with probably a version of polycystic ovarian syndrome or a pre-version. We can't quite nail it down. And no matter what she did for diet and exercise, she kept gaining weight, gaining Mm -hmm. weight, gaining weight. And without going into all of that, she comes to me and to be totally honest, I've been super busy lately and I wanted to like dive in really deep I sent her off with a treatment plan and two months later she came back, right? And I was like, okay, where are we at? And all these things started to shift. <laughs> and like she's sleeping better and her menstrual cycle is better. But one of the things she said is like, I'm thinking more clearly. Hmm. I'm remembering things. My memories come on. Names are sticking with me. And like like we just were able to tweak some things going on with her liver and right. rebalancing. And we've like only just gotten started. So right. I have a lot of experience watching – people's brains come online totally. and their capacity for that kind of thinking. Because I do think when we're under threat or we're literally in a state of trauma physically or emotionally, our body is in survival mode and it's totally. gone, taking those aspects offline. Mm-hmm. So I know for me, a lot of how I feel like I've gotten access more and more to that has been, I live by re- being responsible. I never use the phrase personal responsibility. Right. It never even, it's interesting because it hasn't even ever occurred to me. Right. But just being responsible. And there's what I can be responsible for and then what I don't have the capacity. Mm-hmm. But the more I've been responsible for my own health, my own emotional reactions to things, my own nutrition, my own finances, quite frankly, which I know is one of the biggest things that will throw me into a trigger. Right. <laughs> is when that goes out, I'm like, ah! And I very much have money and love collapsed mm-hmm. when I'm not conscious of it. Right. And so I will, it'll, it doesn't really threaten me physically. It threatens like 
I'm going to lose people or I'm right. not going to be able to connect to people, which is like the greatest threat for me personally. And for, I think for, for everyone, our, actually. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, in different ways. And so as I've done that, the higher and higher levels of what I would call my integrity mm-hmm. of like my life works. And the more my life has worked, the more people around me's lives have been able to come up. Like I have a terrible time hiring personal assistants because every time I hire one within six months, they start fulfilling on dreams that they've been waiting to do for 20 (laughs) years and then they leave me. And so it's like, I mean, it's awesome, but I'm like, okay, I need somebody that's like solid, you know, in this, but I had my last one move to Hawaii and started her whole life in Maui after 17 years in San Francisco. (laughs) And, and I love you, but it was, you know, amazing experience, but is now it's like in Buddhism, they talk about putting yourself at the center of the mandala. Mm -hmm. And I know from my inherited conversations of selflessness, because mm-hmm. where I was raised from, it was like I would help everyone else at the cost of myself, but really with very little right. capacity ultimately. And as I've been flipping that around to me at the center, and then I just beam as big of a light as I can. Mm-hmm. And now my game is how far out can I get still sustaining and nourishing myself? Totally. Well, and it makes me think again of that kind of the metaphor of someone drowning, because mm-hmm. if someone that is drowning has so much kind of big, chaotic, dysregulating energy, and I know that they sort of outweigh me, so to speak, it's actually irresponsible and unloving of me to jump in there to try to save them. Yeah. Because I, the almost guaranteed result is I'm going to drown and so are they. And so there is this space and it's, it's, it's a funny space for me because I, certainly grew up with a like selflessness, self-sacrificial kind of moralized Christian perspective. And so it's hard to tease those things apart. But really, if we don't have enough ballast to give where we can continue to stabilize ourselves in a co-regulatory, self-regulatory sense, we have no business trying to help somebody else. Yeah. Because we will fall to the lowest common denominator. If our margin is so small there, it doesn't take much because dysregulation is highly infectious. Mm And you were talking about people just wanting to like come sit next to you. What they sense in their nonverbal subconscious nervous system is she has ballast that will stabilize me. And I just want to be close to it to, to have that experience, mm-hmm. which is such a beautiful demonstration of exactly what we're talking about. Like you're just like, to your point, like your life just works. Things mm-hmm. just work. Mm-hmm. And it does spill over to people next to you. And that's what I'm calling for, for everyone to do more of, not to have more conversations about politics, not to try to convince your neighbor to see, neighbor to see your perspective, not even to like try to have, you know, nonviolent, non-confrontational problem solving conversations when you're in a dysregulated state, because that's not going to work. Both of you are going to drown. And so there's sort of a, I think we have a card before the horse problem that if we want to have good problem-solving conversations about society, we have to come to it individually and collectively in a far more regulated state than we are right now. And it's not like we will not be regulated by the conversation. We have to be regulated, regulated to, come to, come to the, to come yeah. to the conversation. And I don't hear people saying that and it concerns me because yeah. there is this like, well, we have to talk. Well, we shouldn't fight, but we, we should talk. I'm like, no, we shouldn't talk. We should actually stay where we are and pull back and really work on settling ourselves. That's yeah. like the, what you were talking about, you know, internally in your own process. And then people can sense they can come sit next to you 
And they might just want to sit next to you, but they might also want to talk. And then you can actually have a conversation there. Yeah. But if we do it in the wrong order and we are collectively dysregulated, everyone individually gets dysregulated. Yeah. And then we bring guns to state capitals and things get wild. Yeah. Right. Like it, it, it absolutely devolves at that space. So. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so I know there's a, I know there's a connection. So how does this connect for you to the evolution of man, of mm. masculine and feminine and yeah. us? I'll, I'll sidestep the conversation of feminine because I just don't know enough yeah, about fine. that yet. I'm learning. I'm observing. <laughs> I can't quite speak to it intelligently yet. So I'm just going to dodge that one altogether. It's starting to take shape in my head. I'm getting mm -hmm. there, but not yet. But the, the, the sort of maturational process of the masculine and again, we're talking about things on a sort of societal and, and global scale, so I'll start there. The sort of economic, patriarchal, hierarchical system that exists virtually everywhere on earth now and has since agriculture and civilization got started as a primary, like it's the primary paradigm. Yeah, it's the structure um, we use to organize around. For sure, for sure. It is, as I see it, it is a very immature masculine structure because it's based on principles of hierarchicalism, the sort of one up, one down domination. It's based on individual success, glory in a sort of heroic adolescent sense, glorification of self. Yeah. And, you know, zero sum games, you know, us versus them, like all of these things that everywhere you look like that's, that's, it's nationalism, it's racism, it's sexism, it's everything. Speciesism. Yeah. It's all of those things. Yeah. Right. And, and when boys don't get initiated through usually highly structured and external rituals that are put upon them by some external force, which is, I think, an important distinction because for women, generally speaking, their initiatory thresholds of, and again, this is really broad, but initiatory thresholds of onset of menses childbirth or becoming or birthing something whether it's right. a career or a child and then later menopause are intrinsic that cl we talk about the biological clock yeah. the clock is has its own internal and timeline inescapable absolutely <laughs> it is it is doing its yeah. thing right yeah men don't have that mm -hmm. men are initiated by external forces and it's largely involuntary because we don't like to move forward because it's scary and there's ritualized deaths and there's like it's turbulence and it's disorienting. So it has to come to us and choose us because we're not going to choose it. And it's mm. not truly intrinsic. So the first initiatory threshold there is of boys being kind of smacked about the head by the elder men and being like, hey, stop being a dickhead in, in this competitive, abusive, individualistic way and reorient to the collective. Yeah. And that's the primary shift that takes place in that in that moment. And that almost never takes place in this society. And in fact, the patriarchal organization actually disincentivizes us from doing that because patriarchy by and large, now it's become a very economic system. It's the primary ethos there. It, it views humans, but especially men, as economic units, as units, units for productivity. And it used to be the sort of warrior archetype was the you know was that because it was part of the protect and provide young men's kind of experience now that the physical protection is less of a focus protect becomes accumulating 401k so i feel safe in the world about the future 
and it just becomes an economic story. So protect and provide get merged into the economic yeah. pro, um, productivity. So because patriarchy is that system, we're actually disincentivized from moving past that place. Mm. So there not only is there has there been dissolution of the eldership, particularly of elder males, yeah. where we just devalue them. And they don't even become elders. They become frail elderly, but not elders. energetically yeah. elders. So there's no one to look to. And every generation for hundreds of generations now are effectively marooned in adolescence and young adulthood. Like they're stuck. There's nothing, there's no external elder force That's pulling. to push them to yeah. a different place because it has to happen involuntarily. The only way that kind of sort of excruciatingly works is failure after failure after failure and utter breakdown of one's life that prompts a, <clears throat> the development of an internal masculine, yeah. almost a father figure internally, maybe even an elder internally, where there can be some slow indirect and certainly less efficient self-initiation through those thresholds that we didn't get in our teenage years and young adulthood. Mm -hmm. And that's, I mean, I'm 42. That's what I'm doing now. I'm doing yeah. the thing that I wish would have happened to me when I was 13. Yeah. And that's, and this is kind of where like secure attachment overlays with this because so much of the earning the secure attachment occurs through being a parent to yourself in the way that your parent wasn't there when you were a child. Mm -hmm. So it is again, that creating an internal adult to be able to progressively walk the younger version of myself through those initiatory thresholds. So there's this, there's a bit of this internal split where there's one part of me doing a thing to a different part of me because nothing else in the world is going to do that to that younger, immature, fragmented part of me. Yeah. So that's kind of where I am with the, the sort of patriarchal masculine stuff. And then once you then move from the sort of literally boyhood into being reoriented to the collective and this sort of the, the stages of initiation there really are just as J James Hollis's work, ritualized death, ritualized rebirth, something new. Then you take this very young and fragile new thing and the elders teach this new, this new person, this new man, the wisdom, the, 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 the spiritual lore, the wisdom of the tribe, the things that they need to know to be a man in that particular society. And then they take that, those learnings, and they go test them in the real world. And they go on a walkabout vision quest, hero's journey kind of experience. It's solitary, that's terrifying, that's lonely, and that legitimately could fail. Like there's a real there potential, like that real reality. There's a real potential yeah. for failure there, which is why it's so, it's so scary, which is why the hero's journey is so so testing. You're really testing your metal against dragon, world, nature, whatever. Yeah. And then the last and really important part of the that sort of initiatory experience is the coming home to the village as a new person, a new name a new identity, you're an adult, you're not a child, you have your own home, like there's like a whole different orientation. And what you bring with you is an orientation to the collective as the priority. Mm -hmm. And we don't do any of that, right? And you think about, you know, some of the groups of men in society that were so wounded by the failure of that system. And I think about Vietnam vets, because they did a thing purportedly in the service of the tribe, the greater unit. Yep. And went through the lonely, horrifying, isolating experiences there and came home and we spat in their faces. 
and it utterly destroys the new person. And so there's this just fragmentation. There is no boy and there is no man. It's just a destruction and more vets have died by suicide since the war and then in the war itself. And that pattern of initiation occurs at each of those initiatory thresholds. And so in the masculine journey, I'm going to keep going here unless you interrupt me. I have a question that's burbling. I'm waiting for the moment. No. Do it now. So, I mean, because I I want, I always like to get the all of it. And what's right there at the back of my mouth is like, okay, and as a woman with a man in my life, what do I do? How can I? And you and I have briefly touched on the conversation that I hear a lot around the women. You know, I'm 40 this year Mm -hmm. is... To have a good man, you got to raise one. Right. And that's not my most empowering conversation. <laughs> Understandably. And yet I can also see some components where, and I'm, Justin, I love you, and I think you're going to be good with this, so we'll find out. But like, <laughs> Justin stepping into my life, we had conversations initially where there were things about his life that mm-hmm. were deal breakers for me. Mm-hmm. And usually that's the end of that conversation. Right. And. There is, and I know I see into him who he is. Mm-hmm. He saw me and he said, I got it. I'm going to do it. Nice. Give me six months. Rad. And I went, no way are you going to do that in six months. And now six months, I'm like, wow, all right, we're all doing right. the thing, right? Yeah. And and now he's like, okay, and this is what, and there actually has been, not raising, but like I say, mm-hmm. this is what I require. Mm-hmm. I've never been willing to talk like that right. in a relationship. And and where we started was, it's your life. I mm-hmm. want you to do what you want to do. And whatever you want to do, you should fulfill on. And then I'm going to decide whether or not I want to play with that person right. or not. Right. And he just kept looking at me with these like confused eyes. Right. And he's like, but I want what you want. You have to tell me what that is. Right. And I'd be like, no, I'm not going to tell you. I want you to do what you want to do. And we were in a standstill <laughs> totally. to the point of that was the end of the relationship. Right. Until something clicked in me, I don't really know how, and we've shifted the conversation, and it really has been. And then I notice my maternal instinct comes in where I want to help him with mm-hmm. it. I want to, like, be there through all the steps. Right. And I don't know who, but somewhere recently there was a voice that was like, and then you have to give them the task, give them the trial, give them the journey, mm-hmm. and they let them go figure it out on Absolutely. their own. And I've been actually having to consciously practice that where I say – okay, I need you to deliver X. Mm -hmm. I need this from how you handle this. And then I have to shut the F up. And this is very easy for me. (laughs) I mean, because I've been a coach for 15 years and I have all these resources and and I have all these things. And you're seeing the big picture and telling people how to get from here to there. And the two greatest things that I've done to support him is one, I found him a coach Mm -hmm. that's not me. Mm -hmm. And two, he has an amazing relationship with my father. Nice. And my father is one of those elders. Nice. And he has he has a lot of women in his life. So he hasn't a lot of men to express yeah. himself in the same way. His own friendships mm-hmm. he's cultivated. And there's something that's clicking. And like I remember the first time I was like, Who are you just talking to? He's like, Your dad. I'm like, <laughs> You guys are like chatting on the phone. Just hanging and, out. And more and more lately I've been saying when something comes up, I'm like, I got it. I'd talk to my dad about that mm-hmm. and just get clear what the best approach right. is. Well, and that's the, that's the masculine in you acknowledging the masculine wisdom of the elder, mm-hmm. right? Which is good and normal. Like, again, like that's yeah. good and normal. That's what everyone who's in that masculine moment mode should do in that space. It's, it's not a sex issue. Mm-mm. So there's a couple of things. One, I want to I do a thing and then come back to your question, what do yeah. women do? Because I think it's a really important question. I get it a lot. I think I have a partial answer. 
So the, as I organize the masculine archetypes beyond that boyhood initiation, like once you're a man, and I mean man as in uh, oriented to the collective, no longer interested in the pursuit of glory and heroic individualist orientation, and also taking the distillation and crystallization of those of that earlier initiatory experience of like the confidence and competence and discipline and focus and drive and and that that sort of archetypal experience or the descriptor there i think of is is the hunter mm-hmm. right and in in modern society in civilized society we often identify that as a warrior energy but i think the warrior energy again taking the the longer evolutionary view Warrior as a specific class is a relatively new phenomenon in human history. It's mm. a, we only needed a warrior, a specific warrior class, once we started acquiring wealth and protecting it, yeah. and owning land and stuff and people and you know building cities and expanding everything. Before that, we didn't. We schlepped our stuff around and we didn't have much stuff, so there wasn't a lot of a lot of stuff to fight over. And we would have occasional clashes over resources, basically food, yeah, um, and shelter to a lesser extent. But there, we didn't have a warrior class because we didn't need to. We had physically capable hunters who were good at protecting and providing and who w- could occasionally, when needed, take that courage and physical capacity and turn it to in the service of the tribe to protect from perhaps other humans. But that was not a mode. That was not a, a specific class. So the warrior archetype is a is a evolutionarily novel thing in the same way like processed food is. Yeah. And I think we radically misunderstand that in the modern world. I love that you just compared processed food and warriors. That's just, yeah, nobody I, likes really, it. I'm no like, one oh. likes it when I say that. No one likes that. I love that. But it's new in the same way. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so all of the positive capacities of the hunter, all of those courageous, focused, disciplined, competent um, abilities in the physical realm, right? Because that's protection provided is totally limited to the physical realm. The warrior is a distortion and compression of those capacities. And the problem is that in order to take a hunter and turn them into a warrior, you have to strip away empathy for self. Mm. And when you strip away empathy for self, the natural byproduct is lack of empathy for other. And that's how we create really horrific, abusive, even sadistic warrior cultures. And all of the things that warriors can do, hunters can also do, but hunters have the, the empathetic connection to self where they have some self-preservational instinct. Because the only thing, not the only thing, the primary thing that orients warriors into the sacrifice of self is the promise of glory, is the promise of adoration by the tribe, whether you live or die. Yeah. But that requires that you dismiss your own needs, including your needs for survival. And that works in the service of a civilized, warlike, militarized society. But that's not actually good in terms of a tribal unit and good for humanity at large. So then when we reach a threshold where our tools in the physical realm stop solving the problems at hand, then we're called to another initiatory threshold. And that threshold is failure of protect and provide to meet the needs to solve the problems, Mm. which is everywhere we look. But no one has any idea what to do next, so we keep doing more of the same. We try to accumulate more as a proxy to make us feel safer, et cetera. And then we do it until we're 65 and we collapse and have a heart attack six months after we quit working because what else are we going to do? We just wrung out the sponge that was so dry all the way along. 
But what should happen in that sort of next maturational phase in an archetypal sense is we should move into the, and this is again, failure of the physical realm. We are, as men, as in the masculine journey, we are prompted to move into the realm of the mind. The other part of self that's been totally neglected or right. largely neglected, and that is self-exploration and introspection and getting to know yourself, right? Self-awareness. It's also the realm of, of intellect and spirit. And, you know, so the archetype can be labeled as you know, a magician, shaman, alchemist, philosopher. It's a very intellectual, inward type yeah. space. And it, it round with the, the sum of those two archetypes rounds out mastery of the self. Would that be kind of the equivalent in the woman's circle of crone? No, not yet. no, we'll get, we'll get there. There's okay. another old, there's another more mature v- version of that. That's closer yeah. to crone. Because the mastery of the physical domain and hunter and mastery of the, the inner world as, as philosopher, you know, yeah. alchemist, adds up to mastery of the self. Mm. So then you have this, in, this, this fully intact self, this full container of all of the good things that any individual has, their sort of birthright self. And they can then bring that into relationship to other. Mm-hmm. And so what you have is the next archetypal space is the space of the lover. And the lover is not just a sort of romantic partner. The lover is relating that intact self to everything else in the world. Mm -hmm. Yes, partners, children, parents, coworkers, organizations, countries, the earth, all sorts of relating. So it becomes, instead of it being the sort of vertical column that's contained of self, it becomes a horizontal relationship to everything else that's around you. And it's, again, another one of those fundamental reorientations that take place. It's 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 a 90 degree shift. Because instead of, you know, developing the capacities of the self, you are then taking that intact self and orienting it outward. outward. So it's a a relational phase. Mm -hmm. And that's what happens. And that fundamental reorientation is why midlife shifts, midlife transformations are so chaotic and turbulent and confusing and disorienting. Because these, these back pressures, these archetypes are like clawing their way out of your experience. Like they're coming through you whether yeah. you like it or not. And if you don't do the things that allow you to kind of complete and integrate each of those phases, they will find their way out in almost always really horrific, destructive, painful ways. So putting attention on what they are and describing them, understanding right. them is important. So then you have the space of the lover, which is in relation to everything. And at the sort of the sort of last expression, uh, the sort of fourth archetype that occurs in that masculine journey, a lot of people will call that king energy. Mm-hmm. I don't think that king is the best descriptor there because king is also by and large a civilizational hierarchical organization. Yeah. And king works because it is the end point that makes the glory-seeking warriors aspire to jump over it. Like every warrior yeah. wants to be the king. Yeah. But, it's, but that... What that means is it it washes over and erases all of that intersecting space in the middle or, or intermediate space that's very relational. Yeah. And so I reject King as a good descriptor of that energy. And even if you talk about the sort of servant King or benevolent King or whatever, in the sort of structured generative sense, it's still hierarchical. Yeah. And, you know, it, it requires that there is a kingdom, a large thing underneath you. And I just reject that whole premise. Yeah. But you can have an elder or a sage. And I think about elder, and if there was to be a king, it's more like chairman of the board mm-hmm. than royalty. Yeah. The b- buck has to stop somewhere. Yeah. But that's a like 
council of elders with one person tallying the votes as opposed to being like, this is my word is law. Mm-hmm. So that's the whole arc of things. Yeah. Back to your question, what do women do? Because the way I think about the last half century of you know feminism and, and women collectively really moving forward from a very immature maiden type space, mm-hmm. much more strongly into a mother type space. Mm-hmm. And so those are the kind of two preceding archetypes in, in advance of crone. So what I see is, especially as women who have become literal mothers and also women who have become mothers of their career and life, they have, they have taken ownership of and cared for and nurtured a thing, yeah. their life. Yeah. This is you. Yeah. They, a, they are actually a more mature version of the maiden, individually and collectively. And so we look out at the world and you see a whole bunch of women being like, I don't really want this angry teenage boy who's interested in glory. And I'm not super interested in the warrior that just wants to fuck shit up in the world to prove how awesome he is and to protect and provide ad nauseum until he's 65 years old. Like that's actually not a peer relationship. No. It has utility. Yeah. It has utility when there is both vertical and horizontal relationships in the context of a, a tribal unit, whether it's a family or a community, whatever. So it has utility, but only sometimes and only with some men in some part of their development. And if you're talking about a romantic relationship where you're having, you know, like a, you want a partner, um, a woman who's really squarely in her mother energy is not especially drawn to a less mature man who sure can do the protect and provide thing, but especially women who have their own career paths and have a very mature psyche, they're like, well, I can actually do that for myself anyway. I don't really need you to protect and provide. I've already got that. Yeah. I want someone who's right across from me. Yeah. And that's I mean, what- when I'm not in my most conscious speaking mind, I've had it come out of my mouth and definitely been right there, which is like, what do you bring the table? Right. I mean, yeah. You're, it's a fair question. You're great. You're a shiny object. You were a lot of fun. The dating phase, mm-hmm. and that's what I did for a long time, was like, I was good dating. Right. Entertainment, companionship, right. enjoyment of spending time, getting to know another human being, like yep. no problem. And as soon as it started to actually be about real life happening, mm-hmm. I was like, cool, I'm good. Yep. You can go now. Right, right. <laughs> you know, and like I even started to have my own little world of distinction of playmates, lovers, and partners. Oh, interesting. And the majority of my experience was like mm-hmm. there were playmates that it was just literally totally. everything about this was fun. Yep. There were lovers where there was genuine intimacy and mm-hmm. an emotional caring of each other. Yep. But one of the questions one of my coaches posed to me is would you put your business in the hands of this person? Hmm. And you were like, absolutely not, (laughs) not even close. And so there's been this threshold for me. And this is literally where Justin, because Justin's like, I want to be your partner. And Mm -hmm. I said, you're not qualified. Right. That's how the conversation started. Well, and, and, and I'll say, I'll say Justin as proxy for every other man. Yeah. That sucks to hear. That's very confronting. And it's not, it's true, broadly speaking, right? but it's really confronting because it, it triggers the like defensive, like, what are you talking about? Of course I am. I know everything because when you're 18, you actually think you know everything. And, like, that's the part that comes forward in that space. And men who are sort of close enough to that initiatory threshold, either from some external life experience or the slower, harder internal work of doing it to and for yourself, 
will get nudged over some really small inflection point there and they'll say, oh, fuck, you're right. That was Ugh. literally the it's, conversation. It's literally yeah. like I yeah. literally have this like yeah. gut punched in, the, punched in the gut sensation. Yeah. And that's what – that's the way adult men respond to a confronting challenge yeah. or pointing out failure or just not not showing up. And I don't know what exactly makes a difference between this and that. Mm -hmm. Because so often, and this is like zooming out again, when feminism really sharply rebuked men collectively 70 years ago or whatever for being shitty adolescent boys who were abusing everyone, including the world, most men at that time either became sort of like soft, regressive, childlike and somewhat androgynous, mm -hmm. like smaller version. That's yeah. like soft, spiritual, spineless man, mm -hmm. which predictably women are like, that's not actually that hot because you're kind of like a child. <laughs> yeah. So there's the like adolescent patriarchal mode becoming, moving away from being away from adult. It, being it's regressive. Yeah. Or there's the more truly kind of adolescent, angry, defensive, resentful. I'm going to, you know, like... Again, I really am very visual, so I picture like mother rebuking a 14-year-old boy right. who's been a shit to his whoever. And I think we at one point talked about that. Like even in childhood, it's like then the young boy has an option to either regress back into that soft, you're right, I'm so sorry, mm -hmm. sweet little boy. But then the connection gets put back right. in. Because there's more distance between mother right. and child then. Or of, then there's this big rejection of and the fight and the teenager takes off. Deflection and, go, you know, and yeah. muttering under his breath and yeah. calling her a bitch and kicking a hole in, yeah. the, in, in the wall upstairs. And I am not like an advocate that the way that Justin and I have worked through this is an answer. Sure. It's just what I can reflect on totally. of what I've watched. But, it, but this is the process that yeah. so many couples and potential couples mm -hmm. need to do because women are right to say – hey, you're not actually here with me in the way that I want you to be, the way that I need you to be, to be a partner, a true yeah. partner. And so then, so if men collectively and individually don't respond in the like small, regressive child soft way, and they don't respond in the like defensive, deflective, adolescent, resentful way, yeah. they actually have to like take a deep breath and step in, step forward in a maturational sense and also in a sense of like, <sighs> that's true and I'm sorry and I want to be better and I don't know how and where do we go from here like that's an mm -hmm. adult conversation yeah. and because generally speaking women are way closer on average to that space than men the conversation <laughs> invariably mm -hmm. is men saying like what do I need to catch up to you what do I need to do like how do I get to be a true eye-to-eye -eye peer with you mm -hmm. and so to come back around to your question, what do women do for right now? They have to be patient. Mm -hmm. And it sucks that you've got a lot of men who are just not up to the job, but that's true. It's real. And so for right now, it is on the like micro scale. Sure. Find the man, find the one in a hundred men who's actually up to the job. Yeah. But on the broader sense, women collectively, I think, need to recognize that more and more men are waking up to the reality like, oh, man. This is not okay. And we have no idea what to do. And there's no elders there to lead us through this. So we are in part, and I think it's actually okay in small fractions and small sort of pieces of a relationship that you can bring that mother energy to Justin and mm -hmm. say like, hey, 
and in a very, you used the word maternal a minute ago. Like, I think that's totally okay. And I think it's actually a misunderstanding to think that we should never be parents to our no. partners. Yeah. But that can't be the primary or only way of relating. I literally told him he gets to tell me how to eat because when I deviate, it messes stuff up. Oh, interesting. And like, I'm like, no, no, no. This right. is where you can just be father. Right. <laughs> But, and it's gone really Yeah, well. right? Because when you trust someone, <laughs> yeah. trust that someone else has your best interest yeah. in mind, you can say, actually, you're better at this particular thing. Yeah. Lead me through this space, mm -hmm. right? So I'm curious, with your experience there, do you feel like, and I'll use the word surrendering, it's kind of a dirty word, but do you feel like surrendering to Justin in that space of food choices allows more of your feminine to come forward? Oh, yeah. And that's one of the biggest things, like, you know, he has had an extraordinary set of life circumstances and he's been warrioring and hunting mm -hmm. and doing a lot of those kinds of things that that's what he's been up to. Right. Well, and, that's what we're all taught to do because yeah. that's what we're valued for. Yeah. yeah. And so in some senses, if you just like line up person to person, I've spent the last 15 years building a career and he has some of that, but mm -hmm. it's not to the same level. So because of work I've done with Alison Armstrong's programs in Sacred Feminine and in the Kudoshka, which I've talked about before in other podcasts, is a shamanic sexuality and spirituality rite of passage mm -hmm. process. I've had elder women who've shared with me about how do you – because quite frankly, even if I can find a person who is willing – the magnetism is not there. Totally. And so I'm like, you're a great person, but right. I don't really want to take you to bed and jump your bones right. either, you totally. know? And that's something where for whatever reason where Justin and I have lined up, there was more than a spark. And I have been fortunate enough to have education how to breathe life into that spark. Nice. And how to allow for where he provides and protects, mm -hmm. even when my career is by, I'm going to use societal standards, stronger. Right. And I have a certain, I have more resources in certain typical societal ways than he does right now. But mm -hmm. I mean, give him a year. He's sure. moving really quickly. Because yeah. there was a call to action, which mm -hmm. he's meeting. And so I do have places where I'm intentionally looking to cultivate and empower him as the provider protector, him as the decision maker, mm -hmm. him as the masculine quite totally selfishly because it's hot and I feel because good it in works it for and, the system it's and good I for everyone. get to go into those soft yeah. places and it's interesting that we you know however we decide coincidentally met or the universe planted him in my life literally at the very end of the bottom of my health crash hmm. it was right before diagnosis we met at the beginning of July I mean technically we met last year but we actually connected at the beginning of July I was officially diagnosed at the end of August and I couldn't have gotten through the last six months without him. Mm. And there was something actually about me being in a health crisis, and I was not going to let it impact my practice. But I had five, four to five hours of functional brain power a day, and that had to go 100% to work. Mm -hmm. So he provided food. He provided – and like, he mm -hmm. didn't even really cook much before he right. met me. And he now like puts breakfast on the table every nice. day, puts dinner on the table every night – handles the dog, handles vet things, handles any errands. Like literally right. he took all of that off my plate. And it was interesting set of circumstances that actually allowed our relationship to cultivate inside that space where at one level you could even turn that into him mothering me. But it, we didn't do it that way. Right. We really had it in a different dynamic. Yep. And a bunch of that was intentional on my part. I didn't just let it happen. I was intentional about right. how we created it. Well, and what I hear there in the space of like health crisis is failure of you, 
your, your failure to be able to master the physical realm and the breakdown of that system and having to change the way that energy flows and the way things work because you just couldn't do it anymore. Mm-hmm. Something had to change. And so you were then, and if we take this masculine journey part of it, the failure of the physical realm, the failure of that hunter space where you're providing for yourself and yeah. protecting and all that, you had to say, well, I can't. And I imagine, correct me if I'm wrong, I imagine in the last six months that you've had more space to get more into that inward yeah. shamanic magician philosopher alchemical space which is the next phase in that sort of masculine journey, which Mm -hmm. we all have in us. And he allowed that to happen by providing, again, this is that sort of external force and external input. He allowed that to happen by saying, I've got this physical stuff. Mm -hmm. I can can do this and you can go do that, right? And so there is this really beautiful handing the baton back and forth at different moments in in your maturational process individually because you're going to go through transitions and thresholds at different times. It's not age matched ever, ever, ever. even no matter what. And, and he's four years younger yeah. than me and it's actually irrelevant. Totally. Like it really just doesn't matter. Totally. Uh-uh. When I was, I was, I was doodling yesterday, I was laughing because I always am like drawing graphs and stuff, but I was doodling an X, Y axis of maturational age versus chronological age. And what was occurring to me was we all have this slow plot of time at, you know, at this We'll say that at the same rate. <laughs> we'll just leave it for simplicity's yes. sake. Yeah. And what occurred to me, especially in the space of moving from hunter into the sort of shaman magician space, it's so inward and it requires so much sort of psychic energy and actually just time, introspective time that is meditative, that is self-observing, developing self-awareness that might be structured meditation it might be walking around in the woods it might be going on a solo motorcycle trip it might be study of a different craft whatever but that requires time and it also requires the like open space for the default mode network to do some of its kind of crunching in the background if you don't have any open space if you're working 50 hours a week and then you're running your kids to their extracurricular yeah. activities and then on the few short hours you have you're trying to maintain a relationship with your partner and then you're watching Netflix and whatever else, and like you're filling up all the space, that's not happening in tandem at the same proportionate rate as actual chronological time. Yeah. And so I think one of the other things, again, one of the ways that patriarchy as an economic system incentivizes us to stay in that highly productive warrior economic unit sense is it squeezes out any of the open time it would allow us to move forward because the open time is required for us to yeah. move forward. And isn't it interesting that in many respects, we just got an entire year of a lot of open time. And there's a lot of big and shit happening. a lot of like, for, I mean, between COVID and what happened with my health, that's absolutely been the case. I've had so much more spaciousness and mm-hmm. I'm crystal clear. I'm not interested in going back to the way it was before right. 90 hour work weeks. And that's part of where my chrysalis process of like what I'm transforming into next and how I want to alter things in my day to day and the relationship context. And, you know, my cousin was just sharing about this year. He lives in New York city. And I said, how have you guys been doing? And he's like, honestly, we just took advantage of that. We don't know the next time we're ever going to be able to spend that much time together. And he's like, I'm so in love with my husband and I'm so just enjoying us. We got to know each other at a whole nother level. And, and it's like juicy. Yeah. 
because they just had to. Lots of people sit had that. Lots of people together. had that experience. This and year. I know it yeah. went other ways too for 100%. some people where relationships that were only functioning inside of that patriarchy and the full schedule mm-hmm. and the fact that they talk to each other, you know, a couple hours right. a week. This cracked it because that's not because that's not a real relationship. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's a cohabitation Mm -hmm. with rights for sex and sharing finances. Yeah. (laughs) You know, that's not like a real maturing, growing relationship, which is why when things do shift in some way that gets dicey, that's dysregulates and threatens people, the whole thing very rapidly falls apart. It's it's so fragile, you know, because it's not that really deeply grounded individually and collectively. Yeah. relationship which brings us i guess full circle back to polyvagal theory and <laughs> dysregulation yep. and all that stuff so i'm one of the spaces i'm going next is is trying to understand the like maiden mother crone journey that happens mm-hmm. roughly in tandem with that masculine journey because it's not something i know anything about but what's fascinating to me because i like understanding progressively more complex systems mm-hmm. and that's obviously a very complex system because any variable can be matched at any time you know and it's not the like this and this and this all no. in in perfect unison so i think about you know the sort of diagonals there of many women primarily in that mother space relating downward diagonally to a less mature masculine that's very often squarely in that immature adolescent uninitiated space yeah. or to a sort of hunter warrior protect and provide archetype which is really prevalent that's really common mm-hmm. not necessarily because they're fully initiated and uh, <laughs> i speak to men a lot and a lot of them flatly reject the idea that they're uninitiated they're like i i, I played football i went yeah. to the military i started my own business and i was like all of that's cool but like that's just you playing within the same hierarchical adolescent space yeah. which is no indication whatsoever of initiation and they also, you know, I'm Canadian and I have a fairly sort of left-leaning political slant to talk to more, generally speaking, more conservative American men. This idea of reorientation to the collective as a central principle of, of mature masculine is really confronting. Yeah. Um, because that's, because like personal responsibility, aka code for I don't care about you, and success, acquisition of wealth and yeah. power and fame and sexual prowess. Like those are all very, very individualistic values. And like that's absolutely central to America and absolutely problematic for our collective advancement and maturation as a species. Yeah. Like I have to be careful here. <laughs> like is there a sniper outside when I say these things? The central ethos of America is antithetical to human maturation. And that's not me being like politically anti-American. That's me observing what core values America was founded on and continue to actually be even amplified as we go forward in American history. And there's well, a and, reason well, why the stuff that happened last week is happening here yeah. and not in Sweden or Costa yeah. Rica. And where know? we started this conversation, which was we have looked at the – paleolithic diet as best we can and these other ways of doing things on the physical when we go back and we stretch back in time and we see how 60, 70, 80,000 years and then more Mm -hmm. of genetic biologic history that we're at least entertaining ourselves with chewing ourselves up to, you know, what would it be like to live more in alignment with that? We've only barely tapped the thought of what is that equal right. in the psychological and totally. spiritual and emotional realms. I don't, I almost know 
I know almost no one who's even thinking about that and yeah. asking that question, you know, and yeah. that's, I mean, that's what I'm very interested in because I think about my own, like, this is all the same story, right? Like my own sort of symbolic and, and kind of archetypal maturation, like leaving, doing all of my work in, you know, allied health and rehabilitation medicine, and then moving into the space of nutrition and physical training and advocating for sleep and a more, and then kind of even more kind of balanced, generalized wellness. You know, my last book was about that sort of bigger picture, but all very confined to the physical realm with some nod to this sort of relational space. Then I'm like, okay, cool. Physical realm. That's my hunter archetype. That's the physical mastery of that physical realm. And now I'm looking forward into the space and, and interested in talking about the knowledge and mastery and completion of self, the expansion of, of myself and of men in general into this larger container of like sort of birthright self. So that again, we collectively over decades and generations can rise and stand up and meet women who are already in that very like integrated this is generally speaking, but more mature and more integrated, like mother type space. And, and when, when I can, when, if I'm a fully integrated, like hunter philosopher and my full self, when I show up in a relationship with a, with a woman who's integrated her maiden, integrated her mother, it's fucking amazing. Yeah. Theoretically, I haven't done that, (laughs) but that's the, but that's the place that, that I would like to see all of us going. Yeah. It sounds like much the space that you and Justin are headed, which yeah. is rad. Mm-hmm. But that's like, that doesn't change soon. So there's like all of these kind of incremental things that have to happen yeah. along the way. And the hard part is, and I heard you say this loud and clear about your, your conversation and relationship with Justin. You can say, this is the standard. This is what I need you to do. Here's the task. Here's the direction. I hope you do that. But he has to go do it. Yeah. And every single man has to go do their own thing. And that is both recognizing the failure of the protect and provide hunter warrior archetype to solve all of our problems, which it's not that hard to come to that conclusion. No. But the the problematic and excruciatingly terrifying next step is I have to go inward and do this thing alone. Mm-hmm. It's in the the magician the alchemist space is yeah. alone in the yeah. lab studying self. Yeah. And I and, think that's my next frontier for the relationship, I have my own work is allowing that and being the space spaciousness yeah. for that inner journey and to not have it be him leaving me or right. a lack in the relationship or all totally. of those kinds of things. Well, and, and if you're in that, I love that you brought that up because if you're in that integrated, steady, secure mother type space you can recognize it's okay for him to go inward to do his thing because it doesn't mean that he's leaving you. Like that's the difference between insecure attachment and secure attachment. And in the same way as adult men can't operate from an insecure toddler's nervous system in, you know, that kind of space, you can't operate from a like, oh my God, he's reading books instead of talking to me. He must not love me anymore. The whole relationship's falling apart. Insecure place. Yeah. Because that will fragment the relationship. Yeah. So I guess that's the other thing that women can do, which is recognize that a man who's really doing his work and stepping into the space that you challenge and invite him into is going to have to turn away to go inward. And you have to give him permission to do that. Yeah. Like that's what he has to do. And that's the only road whereby he can circle back and meet you as a fully intact, fully integrated self. 
So the thing that you want requires a bit of a roundabout path yep. and you have to give them permission to do that. And I get that that might not be what you want in the moment, mm -hmm. in the immediate thing. But in my opinion, it's the only way to get to the place you actually want to go want in the future. Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> uh -huh. So there, so there's a book in an hour. <laughs> <laughs> and I can't wait for the actual book. Oh shoot. Yeah, yeah. I haven't I haven't even started writing a proposal, no. but like this is the core content of my yeah. next work. And I don't know what it looks like and I don't know, but yeah. but this is how I this frenetic, excited mode that I get into right now, this is what I do when I give a shit about something. And I feel like I have something actually like significant to contribute. And so it's easy to compress that energy and excitement and, and insight into oh, something, yeah. which will probably be a book at some point. Well, we are eternally grateful for the download, the <sighs> opportunity to surf the waves of the universe with you. It's you may have like, to listen, you may have to yeah. listen to this on like three quarter speed. Right. I know some of them we, we speed up and, you know, to each their own of how they want to take this in. And absolutely. Totally. But as always, it's an honor and a privilege to be wow. in your space and get to have these awesome conversations. Thank yeah. you. It's Lots of fun. I'd love to do it again because there's yeah. lots more of the world to explore. Totally. Cool. We will. Awesome. Until next time. Thank you to today's guest, Dallas Hartwig, for sharing his bold hypothesis for healing men. Are you ready to take on your own health? I'm now accepting clients for 2021. Contact me at sarahmarshallnd.com or Instagram at sarahmarshallnd. For full transcript and all the resources for today's show, visit sarahmarshallnd.com slash podcast. Thank you for listening. Support and spread the word by leaving us a review on your favorite platform so we can heal our world. And as always, a special thanks to music composer Roddy Nickport and our editor, Kendra Vicken. We'll see you next time. <laughs>